0: Welcome to Amazon Legends, where we have real stories about making it big on Amazon. Our guests are CEOs of large companies and entrepreneurs who became power sellers. Also, providers specializing in helping sellers, aggregators that acquire sellers, and former Amazonians will give us an insight from behind the scenes. Here is your host, Nick Urisen. Welcome to another episode of Amazon Legends. My next guest today has built the Amazon DSP team at Tracio. Uh, for those who don't know, it's the largest aggregator in the world that acquires brands. Uh, obviously, gr- managing and growing these brands that they acquire requires a lot of advertising, and that's done with, by using Amazon DSP. And Sam, uh, here, my next guest, has built that team. And also, he built a consulting team for white-label DSP services. So when it comes to DSP, he is the expert. And today, he is the CEO of Delivered Media, which is an Amazon growth agency. And when he's not working, he likes to travel. In fact, he just got back from one of his travels, surfing, gym friends, families, all things that make it fun. So with that, everybody, meet my guest, Sam Lee. Welcome to the show, Sam.
1: Appreciate you having me. Great summary.
0: Oh, uh, I'm dying to hear all about DSP because this is something that is not always known very much, especially for smaller sellers. And so, um, so this episode, for those listening, uh, will be all about Amazon DSP. And and those who don't really know what DSP stands for, it stands for Amazon Demand Side Platform that allows you to programmatically buy ads. So instead of going bidding on things, then you pretty much automate the whole thing, and which is where the scale comes from. So uh, that's what Amazon DSP is. So um, we're going to discuss... How to use it, how to qualify for it, how to get the most out of it, some best practices and and things like that. So, Sam, with that, tell us, what is the biggest misconception about Amazon DSP?
1: Uh, It's got to be the barrier to entry. I mean, it's the the idea that it's only for really large sellers spending massive amounts.
0: Okay, so, uh, I mean, that frankly, that's what. Most people think, and me included in that, because when somebody is launching, uh, we don't really think about it first. Uh, So uh, tell us a little bit more about how smaller brands or growing brands, I should say, take advantage of it. What's involved?
1: So there definitely are qualifications involved for whether somebody can or should use Amazon DSP. I think that overall... The misconception stems from, for one, early days of Amazon DSP in terms of what was required. And two, the ability to access your own seat today still has a relatively high barrier to entry. So if brands wanted to qualify for Amazon DSP today and run it on their own, which honestly I never recommend unless you have somebody in-house who's done it before, that is still a relatively high barrier to entry. That being said, there are companies that you can utilize to access the seat, Or you can run it through an agency who has access a seat. And then there really aren't as high of of spend minimums as you'd think.
0: Okay. So let's quantify that. So let's say that you have a genius guy who understands Amazon DSP in-house and and you're going to do it yourself. What are some requirements in that case if you are going it alone?
1: So typically speaking, I mean, to be honest, the requirements for accessing your own seat are completely a moving target. Um, Recently, Amazon stated that that requirement is $30,000 a month. I actually had a brand approach me that was looking to qualify for their own seat. And they told me that Amazon told me it was $2 million a year. So Amazon is really still figuring this out. There are a couple of reasons for this. For one, they do try to raise a barrier to entry simply because they don't want people that aren't familiar with Amazon DSP trying to run it on their own, getting poor results and then viewing it as an ineffective platform. Um, the other piece is that Amazon does offer managed services where they will actually run the DSP for you and you just supply the ad spend. And Amazon naturally prefers this route just because they get to say where it's shown, how much you spend on it they can incentivize you to just constantly increase spend so they do prefer these things um, but there are agencies that you can utilize to tap into the dsp either using an agency such as myself or we'll manage it for you or there are agencies who will get grant you access to a seat and they just charge you a, on a percentage of ad spend on a perpetual basis but even those agencies typically have minimums that you have to meet if you want to qualify so it's, it's complicated. That being said, if you do work through an agency, either to get a seat or have an agency manage your ads, the minimums aren't, aren't nearly as high. I mean we've had clients that spend two, three thousand dollars a month with an Amazon DSP and seen a ton of success. And then we have seen clients who have you know 50, hundred thousand a month, and they do can do pretty well as well. But it really you don't need to commit 10, 20, thirty thousand a month to if you want to test out DSP. It's just not the case.
0: Okay, well, that's, that's great to know. Just out of curiosity, if Amazon is offering this as a managed service, what do they charge?
1: Honestly, I'm not entirely sure of the digits behind that. I've worked with brands who have done both simultaneously. Amazon usually requires a spend minimum. Last I checked, I mean, again, this is something they change all the time. They don't typically charge an additional fee on top of ad spend, but they do have a minimum commitment. Last I heard from a brand, it was like 20000 but I don't know if that's the case right now. I also think that they do tend to change their answer to that, depending on the brand that they're ultimately working with. But last I was aware, you have to spend at least $20,000 a month if you want to qualify for Amazon to run these sort of ads for you. Yeah.
0: Okay. So to put this in perspective, I just want to say something for our listeners benefit. So Amazon, I had several former Amazonians on the show. So they all have the same idea, or I should say philosophy. Amazon wants you to be successful. yeah. But of course, Amazon has millions of products, many, many, many sellers. So they need to make sure that the service to Amazon customers is delivered in a certain manner. Yeah. That will provide the best customer experience. So uh, if you do those, if you do the things that they want you to do, you will become successful. So ultimately Amazon's goal is provide the best customer experience. And if you do that, then make you successful. So I can actually see why they would not give a straight answer because they don't yet know themselves probably and also, they probably don't want just anybody and everybody to use this platform, and then get bad results, provide bad, irrelevant right. stuff, waste money, and get a bad name. I can see right. that happen. I can see that happening, right?
1: Yeah, I think that it's a mixed bag because it's definitely true that Amazon Amazon makes more money when you make more sales. That's hundred percent true. But Amazon also makes more money when you spend more money. So if you're within a given budget, Amazon is obviously going to want to drive as many sales as possible. That being said, every month, every quarter, whatever it is, it, the advice is always going to be the up the spend because when you increase the spend, they make more on that lever. Typically, increasing spend is going to also increase sales, even if it's at, in a less efficient ma- manner. So they really make money on both sides of the table.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I mean, uh, obviously, it's just the, the perfect mousetrap, right?
1: So, <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, yeah, it, and it, there's definitely a lot of truth behind them not wanting brands to test out an ad platform and not see success because then, A, that brand stops spinning on that platform, B, there may become some sort of negative perception of that platform within the market, which means less people advertise on that platform. So Amazon does, of course, have every reason To want to see you be successful within any given advertising platform that being said take the recommendations with a grain of salt every time because it's going to be more spend it's going to be moving further up the funnel and if you're not a big business looking to spend a ton of money that might not be the best return on investment for you yeah
0: okay so walk us through sam uh someone who's uh doing some sales nothing significant hasn't broken a million yet in a year so uh, about growing, good indications about the product, reviews are good and everything. And, and the company wants to grow. So, and they decide to use Amazon DSP. So walk us through some practical things that they ought to be doing.
1: Yeah, totally. So, I mean, there's a couple of things that we typically look at for one to determine if a brand should be running on DSP. Because while it is 100% true that the barrier to entry is lower than most think, DSP is not for everybody. I all the time will speak to brands that will inquire about DSP and I ultimately advise them against it for one reason or another. But a couple of things that we look at, you should have your PPC strategy very much dialed in before incorporating Amazon DSP. PPC is and always will be the main lever in terms of paid advertising for Amazon sellers to be able to capitalize on as it's lower funnel it's paying actively to drive people to your product detail pages. It's the lifeblood of paid advertising within Amazon. And you should make sure that your PPC strategy is dialed in before looking to expand to DSP. Once you feel like you're in a good place with PPC, um, the next thing I like to look at is review count. Um, I typically don't recommend brands run DSP on products of fewer than 100 reviews or anywhere less than four stars um, just because... For the DSP, you're charging a CPM basis or cost per mile, which is cost per a thousand impressions as opposed to cost per click. So what that means is that you're charged every time somebody sees your ad, whether or not they actually click on it. And in the PPC world, of course, reviews are incredibly important for click through and conversion rates. But often if somebody's going to be dissuaded by a review count and they see you on the product detail page, they just might not click on it. And then you get an impression, but you don't pay anything and people don't go to your product detail pages. Within the DSP, you get charged just when people see it. So you want to make sure that you're ultimately set up for success. And when you are set up for success, then the DSP can be an incredibly powerful lever. But the next thing is, I would say this is another reason to either work with somebody that's experienced in the DSP, either externally or at an agency, whatever it is, as opposed to working with... I'd say Amazon or any of the larger like technology companies that roll out Amazon DSP things for clients because your strategy needs to be unique to your brand and your, and your product type. As an example, within the DSP, almost all of what we do is creating custom audiences based on ASINs. And those audiences come with look back windows. So let's say we want to create an audience for this product and someone who's seen this product over the past 14 days, but they didn't purchase it. That's an audience we typically build within the DSP. But if your product is more expensive, let's say you have a two, dollars $300 product, you might have a longer look back window. Somebody might consider it longer. So you might want to extend that window. If your product is really cheap and somebody's basically either going to buy it in that moment or not, you might not want to run retargeting or you might want a really, really tight retargeting window. So you need to think about things like how long does it take somebody within your audience to make a decision if they want to buy your product? Another thing to think about is you can really create audiences based on any ASIN on Amazon. There are exceptions, like you can't use ASINs that Amazon owns, things like that, of course, but for the most part, you can. And one thing that's important to think about strategically is what other products specifically are people that are might be interested in my product looking at or buying? It's not always as simple as targeting competitors. There can be things like if somebody is looking to buy you know, cleaning supplies. Um, like one of our old brands was um, like a mop head and it's a replacement mop head. So one thing that you can look at is people that are ultimately looking at complementary supplies in any capacity that might be used to clean somebody's house, clean a kitchen. So you need to get creative with the way that you look at your targeting and not just limit yourself to things like retargeting, things like in-market audiences that Amazon creates And often people will utilize the same blanket strategy across every brand, but every brand is so different. And all of the nuance in my eyes, the DSP goes into that initial build and the strategic exploration of audience targeting beyond that.
0: Well, great information. Um, I I wanna understand a little bit more and get into the specifics of it. Just as a a starting point, in, in diving a little bit deeper, how long of a history should you have on a listing like after you launch and then you're using PPC, driving sales, and, and you got established um, amount of you know, sales velocity and conversion yeah. rates um, How long is long enough before you say, okay, you know, I want to start trying DSP uh, on it?
1: Yeah. This is one of those questions that there's no really solid answer for. I would I would kind of just relay back to... Because I mean, for some brands, things pick up really quickly. Some brands, they'll launch, they have enough brand recognition, let's say outside of Amazon or within the other products, whatever it is, and they'll get to 100 reviews very quickly. Their PPC will take off quickly. They'll look to increase PPC budget quickly. And they can be ready for DSP in two or three months after launch if things are going quickly enough. For other brands... That's simply not enough time. So I would say, again, default back to the reviews, four and a half, ideally four and a half stars and a hundred plus reviews. How quickly can you get there? It's not really about a sales velocity number, but I would say you want to push to a point where your PPC spend feels maximized. Um, If you feel like you could add an incremental $5,000 to PPC spend because you have money or you have sales left on the table that you can run efficiently, keep looking to push that. Once you get to a point with PPC spend where you see the sales start to somewhat taper off for every dollar spent, that's a good time to look into investing in DSP because typically speaking, when you launch that and you run them in tandem, you see sales and conversion rates pretty much improve across the board. Um, But I like to just look at it as a walk, jog, run type of thing. Walk being have your product detail page optimized with A-plus content set up for success organically. Have your brand store set up, definitely. And then get PPC set up. Get that optimized to a place where you feel comfortable and then look to layer in DSP. So you just need to take things one step at a time. There's no specific time window. Some brands grow quick, quicker than others, but DSP should be kind of the last piece of this puzzle as it relates to types of marketing on Amazon.
0: Okay, so... The, the next thing that you mentioned uh, at the beginning was have your PPC strategy nailed down. What does that look like? Are you referring to your uh, takeoffs offs and ROAS or your um, the traffic, your commercial rates? What does that look like to us?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on your goals as a brand, right? I'd say for the most part, we look at, Tacos, we look at ROAS, we look at TROAS, all that stuff. We look at efficiency metrics, of course. We look at do you feel like the person, the agency, whoever it is that's been running your PPC is in a good place to the point where we're ready to grow and focus on something else? Because you're always going to have to make changes to PPC, whether you do it automatically, whether you do it manually, it's an ongoing process, but you need to feel like everything is structured correctly you need to feel like your spend is in a good place, you can continue to push PPC spend and launch DSP. Typically speaking, we look to launch DSP at like 10 to 20% of what we're ever spending on PPC. Um, it really depends on the brand and the performance, of course, but as a jumping off point, that's that's usually what we look at. Um, but another thing to look at is if I were to spend $5,000 more on PPC would I receive it at my same basic return announcement ACOs? Would I see a huge hit to efficiency? And if it's the latter, I would definitely look at layering in DSP instead. But otherwise, you want to grow PPC to a point where you feel pretty comfortable with your budget on an ongoing basis. You feel comfortable with your strategy. You don't need to totally restructure anything. You've tapped into both, you know, sponsored product, sponsored brand, and ideally try out sponsored display within PPC first. Um, I like DSP better for a number of reasons. It's just more sophisticated. But trying out sponsored display and seeing if it's effective for your brand could be a good way to test to see if DSP might be right for you. We've seen a lot of instances where a brand didn't do well in sponsored display but did with DSP. But you want to make sure that you test out every ad type, tested out different strategies in PPC, and you're more or less on a good trajectory in your eyes before you layer in an additional avenue. I mean, it's for that same reason that I don't recommend brands launch. Google ads and Facebook ads and TikTok and Amazon all at the same time, because you really need to be able to focus until you've honed in on your strategy enough that you feel like it's a good place before you layer in additional marketing levers.
0: So what I'm hearing, uh, Sam, is if you you feel you are in control of what an expected outcome is going to be with a particular action you take, running yep. your PPC uh, program, that is uh, that is the time for you to start yeah. considering. And, and also that even when you do those things, uh, you no longer see the kind of impact.
1: Yeah, if you start sales- to see the impact of PPC, additional ad spend tailing off, it's a good time to layer in another lever. Or it, I know this is very simplistic, but ask yourself, is our PVC doing well? Are we in a good place? And if your answer is yes, might be time to experiment with something else and see if you can boost it even more. If your answer is no, fix that first. If the first thing that comes to your head is no, don't layer in another lever of marketing because you need to, What's the what's the saying? Like clean your own house before you clean up the world or something like that. Just yeah. you want to make sure that if you're not if you're already not happy with your BBC strategy then fix that first and foremost
0: okay uh, yeah i mean it makes sense in other words amazon dsp is is not a good option as a savior it's exactly all to help you scale if yep. you want that's a great way, your, way to put it and and what is uh, what kind of a return you're getting and then and everything else yeah okay well, these are extremely valuable tips. So uh, let's say that, okay, let's say that you figured out everything is good. You are happy with what's going on. Your your takeoff is pretty much steady. And then you are able to spend a little bit more and see the equal return and the takeoff remains uh, steady. And so now you say, okay, let's now scale. Let's now scale. So. Um the first thing that I'm hearing, and I doubt very much that any of our listeners, unless they have deep pockets where they have their own DSP specialist, they're going to go find somebody. So tell us, what is the best way to pick a provider for this?
1: You know, I would just talk to them about their experience with DSP. It, it's tough to do, obviously, when you yourself haven't run it hands on it. Like, how do you evaluate somebody else's outlook on DSP? But I would just ask about their general time they've worked with, the brands that they've worked with, because the DSP just has not been around that long. And what I essentially had built my consultancy um, business off of was honestly agencies that were taking on big DSP contracts later realizing that they didn't really know how to do it. And they had to outsource because they you know, they didn't have it. Like It doesn't necessarily... You can run Amazon PPC for years. And it has no implication that you're going to to know how to run DSP at all. So I would ask them about their general DSP strategies. I would ask them how it might differ from brand to brand. And I would ask them how a brand will know whether or not it's ready for DSP. Because a lot of brands will use the exact same strategy across every brand that they work with or a lot of platforms or a lot of agencies will. well. And at the end of the day, that's not how this was meant to work. So... Mm -hmm. When companies do that, they're going to see good results somewhere. They're going to see not good results elsewhere. That's why case studies can be valuable, but it's just so easy for people to cherry pick case studies. Like if you have 20 plus clients and a couple of them happen to work, you're going to have a couple of good case studies. So I would just probably ask to speak directly to who's going to be managing my DSP and figure out their experience. Because if this is something that was just put on a PPC manager's plate, as somewhat of an afterthought, it's probably not going to work out. If it's somebody who, people can do both. I've seen people who do both. I personally don't. I used to do PPC, but now I, I do not. Um, my agency does, but I do not. Um, I would just ask them about their experience at the end of the day. And if they're dedicated to that, or if they, you know, we're just tasked with this random sort of thing and we're asked to figure it out. So it can be pretty tricky. Um, but I would also ask them about minimums because if they gave you a ten thousand plus minimum—that's um, just not always the truth, and that's not good for every business. And it probably doesn't bode well for performance because you're going to a, a lot of—I mean, for this isn't the case for all brands, but a lot of the times you're going to wipe out spending.
0: Yeah. Okay. So the next thing is when you are, let's say that you have come across a provider that you like, and then everything that you said they said uh sounds good you comfortable with it what is the best way to structure the the compensation so i don't need you to share specific numbers how much to pay i'm talking about because i've had different ideas on the show being suggested um you know of course there's the fixed fee there's the ad spend percentage and the different ways to work uh Share with us, is there an industry standard and, and, and what is the best formula for a healthy relationship for both sides?
1: Yeah, it man, I, I have this conversation all the time, and that's why we're so flexible with the ways that we charge because different brands it makes sense to get paid in different ways. There's a couple of ways that you can ultimately run payment through the DSP. You can it can be pretty straightforward where you pay us X on a monthly basis. The other thing with the DSP is that more often than not for agencies, um, the way that it has to work, because the DSP seats will be given to the agency. In most cases, it's different if it's a tech service provider, but whatever. And the ad spend invoice will typically have to be invoiced up front because the money ultimately comes out of the agency's account. So if we are going to spend $2,000 a month in July in the DSP, Often we'll have to invoice the $10,000 by the end of June, and then we spend through that and we roll over any underspend, whatever that is. But all that to say, a couple main ways. One of them is just a basic monthly retainer. Um, you pay me you know, a couple thousand, whatever it is, per month. We'll figure out budgets, and we ride off into the sunset. The other way is operating off of a percentage of ad spend. Um, that is just always going to be a mixed bag. We have clients that we do that with because it just absolutely makes sense to do it that way for smaller brands. It doesn't always make as much sense. Some brands have a little bit of, they're a little bit gun shy of doing that just because they feel that the incentives are not mutually aligned in essence, that an agency is going to be incentivized to constantly push spend if they're paid off of a percentage of that spend. If you trust the agency that you're working with and you know that they have your best interest in mind at the end of the day, it's a totally viable business model. We have clients that we do this with and it works great, but it doesn't always work for everybody. Um, The other piece is you can either have that ad spend charged directly as an agency through the DSP. And what that means is every dollar that you see in the DSP will be inclusive of agency fees. So total cost, CPM, return on ad spend, your agency fee will be baked into that or it can be housed separately and you're charged completely separate of the platform by your agency. So there's a lot of ways to do it. And the only way that I can answer that is it's whatever makes the most sense for your brand. And if you prefer a monthly retainer, do it that way. If a percentage makes sense and you can bake that into your budget and that's how you pay for other forms of service, then that makes sense too. Yeah.
0: So I had, so you know what I like, Uh, I like the ad spend, but with the, commitment if you like as a performance uh, yeah
1: like a return on ad spend performance variable we've worked on things like that too
0: so typically what uh, when somebody asks me what's the best way I say don't do fixed monthly because that means that no matter what they do how good they do they are going to get the same amount of money so that's that frankly that mentality either way uh, does not work. So if people right. uh, don't get a return on their hard work, uh, they just will only work so hard. So, right. uh, so I say uh, ad spend. However, uh, there has to be a monthly minimum. So I say uh, agree with a monthly minimum that's small enough that won't bother you, but at the same time large enough to be respectable to cover the basics. And then yep. go percentage of ad spend as long as they agree. That your takeoffs will not drop below whatever. And then if it does, you can decide this is not working. And they also know, and this is not going to happen overnight, of course, they're going to see that happening. And, uh, or you can apply that to your, um, you know, arrangement. Is there something? Um, One thing I will say though, I had a a guest recently who's the person who runs one of the aggregators. And, he said that he likes some kind of uh, participation in the net profit generated. And yep. net profit being this uh, calculated by sales minus ad spend, so that they are not incentivized to keep pushing sales without having some kind of return. What is yep. your take on that?
1: I think that makes a lot of sense as well. It's funny, every single structure that you've mentioned we've done before, um, I think that would makes sense as well. I think it depends on the size of the brand. We've had clients that we've worked with when they're a little bit smaller that we run on that sort of system. Um, the only, and I, I think it makes a ton of sense under the right circumstances. The only uh, reason I've heard why particular brands have been very reluctant to utilize that sort of strategy is if they had already been generating X amount prior to the agency stepping in. Like let's say they had already been running PPC for a long time, they've been generating all this profit, an agency comes in to help take over with management. They felt as though the work that the agency did was capitalizing on work that was already done and they didn't want to, there was some sort of lack of incentive there in their eyes. But all that to say, I I think the overall strategy makes a ton of sense because at the end of the day, what everyone's looking for is some sort of mutually incentivized and mutually profitable agreement. You want it to be profitable for both sides. You want the agency to aim to hit your KPIs as best they possibly can. And you want them. And, you know, usually the best way to do that is through some sort of performance variable that can either be a set variable that's triggered by a certain KPI or it can be a percentage, but I've, I've seen both be very effective, but you're, you're definitely right that I do think it makes the most sense to have some sort of mutually aligned variable.
0: I have something important for all my listeners. Sellers lose money on lost or damaged inventory with Amazon, which can add up to a lot over a year. Did you know that there is a way to claim all your losses? Getida is the global leader in Amazon FBA auditing and reimbursements for Amazon FBA sellers worldwide. They deliver results with no upfront costs. They get paid only when you get paid. Visit www.getida.com forward slash legends to learn more and sign up. And thanks to our friends at Getida, your first $400 in reimbursements will be free. That's www.getida.com forward slash legends and that's www.getida.com da.com forward slash legends. Yeah. Okay. All right. So so we've got our provider. We we uh, had a, a good deal between us that both sides are happy with. Now uh, off to the races. So uh, what is the first thing that the seller needs to do uh, starting with a provider like that?
1: Um, if we're talking about DSP specifically, honestly, you don't need a ton of the DSP stuff to get started. It's, they make it really simple. I literally just need a budget. I need to send out an invoice for that budget and I need an ASIN list. And then I'll send over the strategy to be recommended. I'll build it out. Almost all of the creatives that we run through the DSP are populated through the DSP. They're responsive e-commerce ads. So we don't really need creative assets other than probably a headline and a logo of your choosing to add onto the ad. And we can usually get those built within a week. Um, The only exception to this are if we're running large-scale custom display or video ads, we need assets for that. But it's very easy to get things started, honestly, on, on a pretty short notice.
0: Okay. And as far as managing the relationship, what are some things that, what are some best practices so that both sides are happy with the relationship?
1: Um, I mean, obviously, transparency needs to be there. Consistent communication needs to be there. I personally like to do Slack integrations with my clients. Um, We'll typically have a regular meeting cadence, but just for quick communication, I think it's important for clients to be able to Slack us or instant message us in some capacity and and vice versa, just for communication is needed. Um, A lack of communication is definitely something that you see in terms of when clients are overall frustrated with their current agency and it needs to go both ways just because if the agency is communicating a lot with the client and they're not getting back to them or vice versa then nobody's going to be happy so it's about finding that line between finding a communication channel that works for both sides and keeping it consistent without being you know constant
0: And how about uh, the performance metrics? Are you still just watching what you always watch with PPC or are there other things that you ought to be watching?
1: For the most part, it's very, very similar. The real difference lies in how you're charged. So as an example, I'd still say 90 plus percent of our clients, the main thing that they want to see is return on ad spend, total return on ad spend. Um, we're a very profit focused agency. We're very bottom line focused. So our default is to focus on those sorts of things. That being said, if clients are much more concerned with overall reach, then that's adaptable. But it's the real important thing with all that is to figure it out on the front end. Like, is this client mostly considered with top line revenue? Are they mostly considered with getting $6 out for every dollar that they put in? What is their KPI and what does that number look like? And then that helps for us to advise things like budget. The only other thing is that instead of looking at metrics like cost per click, which we do look at that in the DSP, it's just charged differently. We'll look at things like cost per detail page view for awareness campaigns. And that helps us to give, get more of a holistic uh, view of of how all of our ads are performing. So um, one of the
0: things that you mentioned very early and, you know, uh, is the, it's the principle of the the whole charging so to speak is uh, even though PPC is you pay per click uh, in DSP you're paying for impressions so cost per tax right. uh, cost per million sorry, sorry. Uh, so uh so if that's the case then is there a metric that they ought to be also tracking uh, or yeah. not
1: so yeah, that's one of those funny acronyms because it's cost per mile is CPM, which means cost per thousand impressions, which I swear I learned that like a month ago, which is hilarious. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I mean, obviously the basic ones, return on not spend, simple. It's good to look at cost per click within the DSP just because you're getting a feel for if your ads are actually getting actually in front of people's faces or if they might be hidden. Viewability rates are really important to look at. Because if you don't bid high enough, you can just get charged for impressions that aren't actually on people's screen. They'll be off screen. And that's the difference between what we consider a viewable impression versus just total impressions. Um, And then the big one that I look at in terms of especially awareness and consideration metrics is um, cost per detail page view. That's a big one because it factors in... um, efficiency, as well as like which one of these ads are actually causing people to go to our product detail page versus how many were flying under the radar. And that's a good indicator because if you have a really high cost per detail page view, um, but your sales are also really high, you at least know that your audience is really targeted, but you could be running more efficiently in terms of your impressions. And you could bring that up. So we usually look at obviously cost and sales, return on ad spend. And then I look at cost per detail page view before I look at things like CPM.
0: Okay. So um, explain to us the difference between viewability. So, how can something be displayed without being uh, viewable?
1: Yeah. So, think about it this way you load a product detail page on Amazon, right? The whole thing loads, but you're only ultimately having access to a portion of it on your screen. So, if It loads. I go to the top. I look at some bullet points. I decide if I want to buy or not. And then I click off of it. That ad loads. And that ad loading considers it an impression. If it's, I think it's 70% of it or something like that is on somebody's screen at any given time, that's what's considered viewable. So I've seen instances where brands have been running DSP and they think the results are great. But then I look at their viewability and it's like 10%. And then what that tells me is that people aren't actually seeing their ads and the sales that are seeing are just misplacing attribution from organic because the DSP will operate on a view through window. So it's likely an ad was served. Somebody didn't see it. They were going to go back and buy that product anyways. So even if the results might look good in an instance like that, we can say with some relative certainty that it wasn't the ad that was influencing the sale.
0: I see. Okay. Yeah, because I, I see it all the time. I, I click on the search results, go to the page, and the page comes up pretty quickly, but certain parts of it, they don't load up for a while. So what you exactly. are saying, SP will charge whatever is on that page, but it may not actually show
1: up. That's how pretty much all display advertising works. So that's why bidding higher and making sure that you're selecting the right ad types that will be more prominent on a page help influence. You want to also set viewability minimums and that's how the DSP knows to bid for certain placements and it'll hold the overall campaign to a certain viewability threshold to mitigate the risk of serving what's considered invisible ads.
0: And, but there is nothing that the advertiser can do to influence the, the, the viewability percentage, right? That's just a matter of infrastructure, internet speed, you name it, right?
1: You can influence the viewability of your ads based on things like bids and viewability minimums that influence the placement of those ads. So if you're bidding really low, you're ultimately bidding for less competitive real estate, which isn't front and center, and your ultimate viewability is going to be lower as a result. So dropping bids in order to improve efficiency isn't always the right move, especially in this situation. Okay. All
0: right. So let's now talk about a little bit uh, the reporting aspect of it. So, one thing I'd like to see for all our yeah. clients is what was the ad spend yeah. and what generating sales? And then, what were the uh, external sales? That's traffic you bring from outside, track yeah. through, and then uh, what are the organic sales? So, those three buckets are things I'd like to stay close to. And then, of course, the total. So uh, when you have a DSP uh, operation going on, they generate sales. How is that reported? And just like the others can be.
1: Yeah, it it can be a little bit trickier just because the DSP platform. um, Well, Amazon's been taking steps to integrate the DSP into the broader advertising console. But the DSP still lives outside of your seller central account. Whereas PPC stuff gets tied directly in, DSP does not. So without following the step that I'm about to describe, you often run the risk of double counting sales between PPC and DSP because they live separately. So if somebody sees or clicks a DSP ad, goes back, clicks a PPC ad, buys something, often brands and agencies run the risk of double counting sales. So... The way that you can mitigate that, the main thing is with something that's called a merchant token. The merchant token can be found through your Seller Central account, or you can find the merchant token through any brand by clicking on the brand's name in the buy box and pulling it out of the URL. But you input that at the advertiser level within Amazon DSP, and that basically deduplicates. It ties it to the Seller Central account, in theory, purely for the purpose of deduplicating sales so you don't count them twice. Um, That being said, the reporting piece can be a little bit trickier because often if brands are working with agencies, they won't have direct access to the DSP dashboard simply because an agency will have a bunch of clients' data in there and they can't have clients looking at each other's clients' data. So what we do is our partner that we utilize for DSP is PackView. Um, I don't personally opt into any of the automation tools because I prefer to do it manually, but it's for for things like seed access it's they have dashboards that are live that we give clients access to that has full-scale DSP reporting by product order line item um, all that information is readily available and we keep it right next so they'll have a BVC dashboard and a DSP dashboard that live right next to each other
0: so okay I, I understand um, so there's two two different scenarios here and I'd like to know how Amazon handles you know, both. Scenario one is let's assume that hundred dollars were generated, you know, on a product, thirty dollars came from PPC. You can pick up those sales easily from the PPC, from the campaign manager, right. and whatever. And and then you can pick up the external traffic sales from the attribution report. So let's yep. say you got. came from that. Uh, So that's $50. And then you got your total sales uh, coming, you know, $100 altogether. When you subtract that, then you've got $50 worth of organic sales. So without the the DSP situation, that's easy to figure out. Right. So um, scenario one, when you engage DSP and you are also running PPC campaigns, When somebody solely clicks on that DSP ad and makes a purchase, is that reported separately? If they never click the sponsor, you know, the PPC uh, ads, uh, how is that reported separately just like the PPC campaign manager shows that this is the paid sales?
1: So this would be reported through the DSP. And again, this is something that The best way to look at is the scenario that you just described. You would have to take the overall DSP sales numbers and bake that as another piece of the puzzle when determining organic. And it can be something that's a little bit tricky because they don't all live within Seller Central due to the nature of the platform. So you do sometimes have to take a step back and say, okay, here's DSP sales, here's PPC, here's external, here is total sales, so that's how I can back into organic And are my total sales going up and by how much when I run DSP, have I seen a shrinking amount that I can attribute to organic or are these sales incremental? And that's the best way to really, you know, gauge how successful it's being just because you want to make sure. And in the same way that when you run branded PPC, you're like, okay, were these sales that were going to come in anyways, or were these sales that wouldn't have come in had I not bid on my brand term because they would have bought from somebody else? And the answer is, it's usually somewhat of a mixed bag. That's why when we look at things like retargeting, it's important to take a look at how or what we can attribute to organic sales or ultimately influenced to make sure that what we're running and the strategies that are a little bit lower funnel aren't simply cannibalizing attribution. And the answer is a little bit different for every brand. Amazon doesn't make it super simple to break out But by taking a couple steps back and looking at a holistic view of how your sales and data are ultimately impacted with and without DSP, that's the best way to get a clear answer to it.
0: Yeah. Uh, So the scenario two is the real complex scenario, which frankly is likely to happen more often, uh, is I'm a shopper. I come along and, and I do a search. Comes the sponsored product, my usual PPC and i don't click on it and and i happen to see the same product in organic search i click on it and i don't buy it i continue doing my search and then up comes dsp ad and and i click on it and i don't buy it i i go back to the same product detail page and i say oh seen this already uh still don't buy go back and then ultimately click on the sponsored product ad and then make the purchase now this is yep. clear clearly a mixed bag so this is the real definition of attribution right
1: so yeah
0: does amazon handle the attribution in across- that scenario
1: it's ppc yes in that scenario it's attributed to ppc and that's always such a question right like That's the classic customer journey, which ad gets the credit. Would they have bought it had they not been served the PPC ad? Would they have bought it had the DSP retargeting ad never showed up on the computer? The answer is we'll we'll never know for sure on any given instance. That being said, there are tools like AMC um, that have become incredibly valuable for things like this. And they'll show us data such as what is our overall conversion rate on a product detail page visit? when somebody has just been served a PPC ad? What is our conversion rate when somebody has only come through there organically? What is our conversion rate when they've just seen a DSP ad but didn't click a PPC ad? And what is our conversion rate when someone has clicked a PPC ad and seen a DSP ad? And it'll show you the difference between how likely somebody is to buy based as a percentage. And that's the best way to look at it because on any consumer journey, the answer is gonna be different. Like that exact thing has probably happened to me And my answer is I was probably going to buy the product anyways, but maybe I needed a reminder. Maybe this person does and that person doesn't. So it's always a mixed bag and you'll drive yourself crazy trying to think of all the ins and outs and and every given scenario is what sales are incremental and what's aren't. So utilize your total sales volume, utilize efficiency metrics in the platform, utilize AMC to see if there's a difference between which ad levers are being served to which people and when, and then, use all that to make yourself some money because um, the attribution question definitely gets very tricky the further in the weeds you go.
0: So I have another uh, obscure scenario. However, it's fairly common. I I do it all the time. and I don't know the answer to this. I want to see what you think. It's nothing to do with DSP but it's directly related to obviously uh, what we're talking about. uh, Performance of uh, anything so let's assume let's keep it simple you ran a ppc campaign sponsored product came up people clicked on it they looked at it and said you know what looks like the product add to cart day one never completed the purchase the item is in the in the shopping cart yeah Day two, nothing. Day three, nothing. The shopper comes back. On day four, they want to buy something else. And now at that point, the item is in the cart. They go search whatever they wanted to buy on day four. They find it, and they add it to cart and check out with both items. So question one, what is the day that takes the credit for? that sale, is it the day they complete the purchase or is it the day they add it to cart?
1: I believe that the add to cart credit will happen the day they add to cart and the purchase and sale will be the day they bought the product. So you'll see an add to cart on Wednesday and you'll see sales on Saturday.
0: So in the reporting, you will see sessions on the day they add to cart, but no sale. But on the day they make the sale, Amazon makes a sale, they'll see no sessions, but they'll see
1: an order. Yep. That's why it can look so weird sometimes. And it's, you got to think about it just like that happens all the time, you know? And if you added something to your cart on a Wednesday, they're going to credit that add to cart on that Wednesday when it happens. If you see sales on a Friday, the sales will come in on that Friday. That being said, there's obviously an attribution window for ads. So as long as you still bought it within that attribution window, it'll be attributed to sales for that ad. Versus if you add something to your card and you come back so long later that you're without, you're outside of the scope of an attribution window, you'll see the sale on that day, but an ad is not going to get attributed for that sale. So one other interesting thing to look at when You're looking at things like add to carts. Is sometimes I'll look at a client's rate of add to cart versus purchases. Because one thing that I do a lot is I'll, if I'm in the market for something, I'll add all the ones to my cart that look interesting. And then I'll go in and I'll remove all the ones and figure out which one I want to buy and just buy one. So sometimes we've seen clients have an incredibly efficient add to cart cost. Like they weren't paying very much at all. A lot of people were adding this product to their cart but their actual return on ad spend wasn't very high. And it was simply because they had an attractive product, but due to something, maybe it was their price point, um, they weren't getting as many sales because they had competitors that were selling something that's comparable and cheaper. And the data, that sort of data can tell you a lot about the competitive landscape.
0: Yeah. Well, a lot of intense conversation. I mean, this is real real heavy stuff. Nitty gritty. (laughs) <laughs> you know, uh, you may want to. Well, I'm sure you ask yourself, why the hell am I in this business, right? So,
1: <laughs> everybody needs something to geek out on. I guess this is mine.
0: Exactly. <laughs> you know, the standard answer is, but what what else would I be doing if I wasn't doing this, right?
1: Yeah, and I mean, at the end, that's why agencies exist. A lot of the time, man, yeah. like like brands will come to us and they'll have headaches because they've been dealing with sellers support for two, three weeks, and, you know, we'll take it off their hands. And they're like, why do you guys do this stuff? I'm like, I mean, someone has to do it. So
0: so, uh, so this is a good segue to my next segment of what I love talking about in, on the show is how you got into this, but not necessarily in this particular business. I'm talking about your life experiences growing up when was the first time you discovered that you were attracted to complexities and then solving problems and what
1: what was that? Yeah, was I I was always really good at math um, and my family really was not their star suit. Um, I come from a family of lifeguards and my dad was an LA County lifeguard. He was incredibly good at English. He was an English major and I would come home and We had, we could just, he could not help me with my homework or actually, no, it wasn't that it was mostly that we just had exact opposite ways of thinking in terms of the way that my homework would be. So it actually worked out somewhat well because for things like English class and papers, he was really good at it. He could help me. And I had trouble writing long papers. Like I couldn't write. I would always get dinged for my papers being too short. Like it would be a 10 page minimum. And I'd turn in like a three and a half page paper. I'm like, these are all my thoughts. Like I got them down. Like I, I got to the point. But math, I was always a class or two ahead of my grade. And it was always really easy for me. Um, and I, you know, growing up for a while, I thought I wanted to be a lifeguard like my family, but then wound up deciding to get into business purely just because I, I like to look at numbers. I like to analyze data. I like to have it tell me stories. And um, honestly, digital marketing was a super easy Avenue for me, just because I I always figured if you can arrange numbers in enough different ways, you can always figure out a problem. And I like when there are definitive solutions to things.
0: So when you uh, when you realized that this was the case for you, uh, I mean, I always
1: knew that math was good, but sorry, keep going.
0: Yeah. So I mean, was that? Uh, how was that received by, by your dad and by, by the family?
1: Well, they're incredibly supportive. I think it's great. They still don't fully understand it, but they were always really supportive of it. I think that like they know that lifeguarding is an incredibly, um, I mean, it's one of the most respectable jobs in my eyes that I can think of. It's also very dangerous. I think that, you know, my dad was incredibly stressed out about his work a lot of the time. And for me, I, I hit a point where I didn't want to have other people's ultimately lives at my hand. And I obviously have a ton of respect for people who do, but I think my family was happy to see me do something that allowed me to work remote, allowed me to travel. Um, they found it really interesting learning about something that they had really no insight into. So they find it all incredibly interesting and they're and they're super supportive about it
0: and how about uh, the entrepreneurial approach because it's one thing to be good at math i mean you could have been a a scientist you could have been a statistician or you could could have been. but instead you became an entrepreneur so uh, how did that come about
1: i think it was honestly just talking to people i think that it's always been a mix i've had a difficult time balancing my love for being in the weeds with things like data, with my love for socializing and, and getting to know people and, and speaking. Like I don't really I, I was never gonna be on the brand side running ads for too long just because there wasn't enough of a communication focus in and some jobs that I've had. And it didn't really allow for me to honestly do what I, I found I was best at, which I, I've always had a love for networking. I've always had a sales component to me. I was a recruiter before I got into digital marketing and I loved being on the phones. I loved, you know, I, I just loved that sort of networking and talking to as many people as I can, learning things from others versus reading. I was never big into, you know, I, I like to learn, but I like to learn from others whenever possible. So I needed there to be some sort of communication aspect in what I was doing. I needed there to be a mathematical approach to what I was doing. And an entrepreneur in the space, really, it just seemed to be the best of both worlds for me. So now I get to, I get to travel, which I obviously love. I get to talk to all sorts of different people, and then a couple of days a week, I'm behind my desk still looking at numbers. So it's a real healthy mix for me.
0: Well, I mean, the, there is, you know that there is a there is a, a gentleman by the name of uh, Doctor Gerard Bell who runs a place called Bell Leadership Institute. So he talks about every leader having six uh, core traits. And one of them is, he calls it stabilizer, and uh, sorry, team builder. And and the most successful leaders are team builders. That's their yep. strongest uh, uh, trait. And team builders are primarily people who like networking and yep. who like building teams and talking. Uh, so, uh, so one of the things that I uh, asked when I did a little workshop with him, uh, he, uh, my question was, do you acquire these things or are you born with it? He said, it's your environment yeah. that makes. So what I want to ask you is. What was it growing up? And and by the way, this is this this environment is right at the, in the very early age, not yeah. later.
1: Right, right. So
0: what was it that in your environment growing up that made you a good networker and and good uh, communicator?
1: I mean, this is really not what you would expect somebody to say, but I think being an only child was a huge help for me. Um, I think that. I grew up incredibly close to my parents and with my family, but I was ultimately, you know, sent to schools and camps my whole life for sports and all these things by myself. And I was always forced to make friends everywhere I went because I, I was never much of a loner. I'm fine with spending time by myself. I, you know, I've, I've no problems being alone. And sometimes I prefer it, but I was forced in that environment very often growing up and whether it was because I, you know, I'd go to school and then after school care, whatever it was, and I was, you know, I was putting it put into a lot of environments where I was so, basically forced to network or just be a loner. And I chose to, I always chose to make friends and I've taken it upon myself several times to move to cities where I don't know anybody for a couple months, couple years, whatever it is. And you're, you're forced to meet people and I've just grown to enjoy it.
0: Well, you you uh, you are the perfect example of getting something good out of something not so good. Being the only child, being alone, and then you leverage that and actually turned it into a strength.
1: It's funny, yeah. The stigma is always the the loner, social awkward, spoiled only child. It's a lot of negative stigmas that come with that, but I've I've found it to be useful.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it's. Well, when 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 did you realize that you wanted to do that? Or was it because you can't, you know, when you look back, say, oh, this is why I did this. But probably at the time, the first time it happened to you, that wasn't an easy situation. And then you started to think about it and then started to do the right things. When was that first time that you realized?
1: I honestly didn't really pick up on it a ton until college or maybe just after. I think that I always, you know, I, had a, I always had a lot of friends growing up and, in high school and early college, but I didn't really view it as any form of like a networking skill or something that I really enjoyed doing. I, I didn't think twice about it until I started actually attending marketing conferences as an intern um, in college, and at that point, I realized that it was something that I really enjoyed doing. Yeah.
0: Wow, that's great. It's amazing, isn't it, and how life, uh, throws you at situations and then you kind of make use of them
1: and come yeah, out. Yeah, I think it's funny a lot or the only other thing I can think of is a lot of the time it's a kid's worst nightmare to be sent to a new school where they don't know anybody and they have no friends. It seems intimidating and I would see that happening in shows and movies and I thought it looked great. I always wanted that to happen to me. <laughs> like my family make me move out of town and go to a new school where I didn't know anybody. I thought it seemed so fun.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I, uh, I mean, you, you grew up in uh, in uh, I I heard uh, L.A. County, so you are in California. So you grew yep. up there. You your parents didn't travel around uh, different places for their work, right? It were pretty much the same place. Used
1: to be the same lifeguard station, same tower, same area. Yeah.
0: Okay. Time. I'm going to share something with you that you might you might find interesting uh, about what you just mentioned, but being sent to different schools. There is a concept called Third Culture Kid, TCK for sure. Yeah, TCKs are typically, they are military brands. So right. what happens is their parents are constantly being posted to different uh, places around the world. And as a result, they go to school and make some friends. And the next thing is, it's time to move. And right. then they move. Then after a while, it's time to move again and again. So what happens is TCKs grow up without really making friends that last a long time because they're constantly changing. So uh, apparently this was discovered in early 1980s by a psychologist as as a phenomenon because such people or TCKs all have the common characteristics when it comes to their emotional um, way of handling relationships, challenges, yeah. in relationships and things like that, and it's very interesting. Yeah, and so this, the definition of TCK is people who spend more of their adult years outside of their parents' culture. So it right. could be a locality, it could be a. So, I happen to be a TCK, and and I I I when I learned about this, it was. and and it's serious awareness for me. So I explained a lot of the things. And I find it strange now that you are saying, uh, I envy people like that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I did. I had this weird, it was this weird complexion as a kid where I was like, I just, I thought it sounded fun. Like I didn't really, I I wouldn't say I thought as deep about it to be like, I wish I would, you know, was moving around every so and then, but I was always like, all right, here's what I have. And here's, you know, I'm playing the sport, and I have these friends. I was always like, I kind of wonder where I would have ended up if I went and went to that school. Then what happens next? It was just I was always looking to shake things up, and I think as an adult, it's kind of translated to me moving around to different cities a lot and traveling a lot.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, you know, life is funny. You know, yeah,
1: it's funny um, that way.
0: Well, this was great, Sam. Uh, wonderful information about DSP. So tell us uh, how can people reach you?
1: Yeah um, so my company is deliveredmedia.com with no vowels, dLVrd media.com. Um, often it just sounded out often people ask me if it's an acronym and it is not. Um, but the best way is just first last Lee at deliveredmedia.com. Or you can always find me on LinkedIn. I'm, I, I use LinkedIn a fair amount. My name is incredibly common being Sam Lee. There are a lot of us, but if you try hard enough, I'm, I'm sure you'll be able to find me.
0: Oh, yeah, I'm sure they will. So we will obviously put your contact information with your episode so people can reach out. Perfect. Now, thank you, Sam. This was great conversation. Very valuable knowledge. Thank you.
1: Always, man. It's great talking to you.
0: Before we wrap up, don't forget to visit www.getida.com forward slash legends to learn more and sign up to claim money for your lost or damaged inventory with Amazon. Your first $400 in reimbursements will be free. www.getida.com forward slash legends and that's www.getida.com forward slash legends. Thank you. And this brings us to the end of another episode, and I'll see you on the next one. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe, rate and review the episode and share it with someone you think would benefit from it too.